0: Westerns, where some individual is, uh, is dropped out in the middle of nowhere, maybe in the desert or some really remote place, but mostly the desert. And there they are walking and walking and walking, and they don't have any water, and they're they're starting to die. And and what happens is they begin to hallucinate, and because the heat of the day, they look off into the distance, and they begin to see these mirages. And uh, the mirages can actually, uh, it's a form of hallucination, but not completely. So I'll I'll explain that in a minute. The mirage can happen as a result of just in the desert, the heat coming up and massive amounts that it actually creates an optical illusion of water off there in the distance. And so, But where the problem comes in is because uh, an individual is not uh, uh, having access to water and at the very same time they're beginning to hallucinate, their mind begins to fool them. They know externally that there's no way that there's water over there, but because it looks so much like water, their mind begins to fool them in saying, okay, there it is, I'm going to go get it. Matter of fact, these mirages can be more as time goes on. It can look like there's a hotel over there with a bunch of lights. It could look like it's a a wonderful uh, Vegas situation out in the middle of nowhere. It could look like a car that just drove up and wanted to take you away. That's what the mind can do. And it begins to fool itself. But the whole idea of mirage is a reality. And I want to start with that illustration because that is the way much of life is. That we're looking at life and, and for one reason or another, we're looking out there. And it, it's amazing what the human mind can do in fooling. We fool ourselves because we want something to be there so badly. It could be a physical desire in the case of needing wanting water. It could be more than that could be so many things in this life that we wish we had, we want to have. We force ourselves to imagine it there. And so, in the case of the person chasing the mirage, they start going in a direction that perhaps they shouldn't go. They're going in a direction toward what is the mirage, which in many cases is nowhere near water. And as a matter of fact, it might be that they know they should go in a particular direction. That let's say they head east or they head west, that eventually going hit, to hit water if they just keep going in that direction. They can fool themselves into thinking, no, I'm going to go that way. Short term gain, you know, and to, and, and to bypass everything that they know that they probably should do again this life. Which is why exactly God gave us the Ten Commandments. Because He knew that we as human beings would begin to get confused by this world that we live in. It's a broken world. We know that in this world, that through Adam and Eve, it brought to us a a fallen place. And and this world, as a matter of fact, the language kind of speaks that the the earth itself would rise up to offensively come after us, to, to resist us, part of the curse. And so here we are living our lives and we're wanting things to happen, to go well for us. And, and, and God says, look, I know this is going to happen. You're going to get confused. You're going to be overwhelmed by the, the situations of life, the realities, the things that come into your heart. They're going to challenge you. They're going to deceive you. And so as a result, we will bypass. We will do what we know is right, to head in the direction that we know is best for us, where the oasis is waiting, And yet we find ourselves going in the wrong direction. So what did God do? Well, he gave us some coordinates. He gave us some GPS coordinates. He gave us these these 10 commandments that, as I said, and what we've been trying to to, to communicate all through this, that on on one side we see as a list of don'ts, when in reality they're a list of do's. They're a list of things that God is trying to help us see that as a father to a child to say, look, don't do that. That'll harm you. That's a mirage, and I'm giving you these clear coordinates so that when the time comes and you begin to question that, that you'll know to stay the course. you'll know to stay the course. So we're going to go ahead and jump into today's next commandment. going through. We're on point eight and uh, commandment number eight today, and so let's just jump right on in. Exodus chapter 20, as we have done each week, we read the whole 10 commandments, and we come and comment on the next one. In Exodus chapter 21 through 4. And God spoke all these words, saying, I am the Lord your God who brought you out of the land of Egypt, out of the house of slavery. You shall have no other gods before me. You shall not make for yourself a carved image or any likeness of anything that is in heaven above, or that is in the earth beneath, or that is in the water under the earth. You shall not take the name of the Lord your God in vain, for the Lord will not hold him guiltless who takes his name in vain. Remember the Sabbath day to keep it holy. Honor your father and your mother that your days may be long in the land that the Lord your God is giving you. You shall not murder. You shall not commit adultery. You shall not steal. You shall not bear false witness against your neighbor. You shall not covet your neighbor's house. You shall not covet your neighbor's wife or, your male, or their male servant or their, his female servant or his ox or his donkey or anything else that is your neighbor's. Now, you want to stick around to the very end here where I talk about don- donkeys and oxes and how we're going to figure that out. We'll get it figured out. It's good stuff. Today, our next point, our next commandment is thou shalt not steal. Now, when you, when you look at that one again, I think last week, to be honest with you, was our high-water mark of discomfort. In other words, we were talking about adultery and you could feel the shifting and everybody feeling a little uncomfortable because, you know, look, this is in our face. This is truth just coming right at us both barrels. So today we're going to talk about stealing. And I think, like last week, it's very easy for us to just say, well, phew, I think I'm good on that one. You know, wasn't an adulterer, never did that. This week, talking about stealing. And it's interesting that you would think that, that it, a Barna, George Barna, did a, uh, a research, a, a, a survey, as they call them, and uh, he took this several years ago, and, and it went like this, that 86% of adults claimed that they completely satisfied God's requirements of abstinence from stealing. You shall not steal is a good word for thieves and robbers, we think, but doesn't have much to say to ordinary people. So that's kind of the consensus, the idea of most people think, well, I don't steal, I think I'm good to go on that one. So I think we need to take a little bit of time, though, and realize that just like every commandment and every maybe category of sin, that it goes a lot deeper than I think we initially think. And, of course, Jesus came to do that very thing, to show that, to, to show us that sin was not just an external problem, that sin was an internal problem. And when we think about how theft goes and, and all of that, we're going get to get into the, 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 you know, all of it today, but I think it's important for us to look at that it goes a lot deeper than what is the first glance. And so... When we think about the law, when we think about the Ten Commandments, we know that what Jesus said about these other two, which will kind of lay the foundation for where we're going today. So when he talked about murder, he said this in Matthew 5. You have heard that it was said to those of old, you shall not murder, and whoever murders will be liable to judgment. But I say to you that everyone who is angry with his brother will be liable to judgment. What he's saying is you know, that that's where the murderous heart came from and comes from. So he's saying, look, you say you've never killed anybody. He says, but in your heart, that's where you're headed. That when you give in anger, when you give in to judgment, when you give in to bitterness and resentment, it, it, it's the same thing. It's the core of the murderous heart. And so, of course, Jesus must have made the crowds feel really uncomfortable with that one when he said, look, the, the problem is not what comes out of a man or what goes into a man as far as the food and whatnot, but it's what comes out of the man and the words that he speaks and the... the that, the, the things that go on inside the heart. Well, then he talked about adultery. In Matthew 5, we covered this last week. But he said this, You have heard that it was said, You shall not commit adultery. But I say to you that anyone who, or and everyone, rather, who looks at a woman with lustful intent has already committed adultery with her in his heart. So he's saying once again that we want to look at what we haven't done. But Jesus is saying, No, it's a lot deeper than that. So it's not the letter of the law, which was what he was going after, but the spirit of the law. And he said, "You, he was speaking to the Jews at the time, who were doing everything they could to fulfill the law from the letter point of view, but still had murderous hearts. They were still treating people unkindly. We're still being bitter and manipulative and controlling. We're still doing things behind the scene that were violating the law in its heart. But because they were letterists, because they were legalists, they were getting around it. But Jesus said, no, 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 You, no, you're not. As a matter of fact, you have done that to such a degree that you're not even close to God anymore. You, have, you don't even understand who he is. Because that's where it can lead. So in the very same way, he, he exposes the heart when it comes to lust. To say, look, you know, we want to just talk about what we do or don't do. He says, no, no, no that, all that brokenness begins deep, deep inside the heart. Now, Jesus did this. To show us in the grand scheme, and Paul brought it to to, to bear, was that the law had an intention. God had a purpose, a long range plan in giving the law. And that was to bring us to the place to realize we can't do it. We are too broken. We have this sinful nature that we're battling. And, matter of fact, when calling us account, Paul even came to the point of saying there in Romans chapter 7 and 8, that which I want to do, I can't do. And that which I know I should do, that I keep on doing. And he said, I find this law at work inside me, the law of sin and death. And so the law has brought us to the end of ourselves, which in reality is a very, very good thing. And you know what's interesting is that, of course, they they discovered that in the Old Testament over time. And, of course, Jesus came to bring that to bear. But it's interesting that over the last 2,000 years, the church continues to relearn this. And it's hard to say. I mean, it's hard to talk about. But the truth is we keep running back to legalism. We keep running back to trying to just go through the motions, just giving God enough, but never really dealing with our hearts. So the the truth of this is still very relevant, still very, very powerful. So are the Ten Commandments, you know, out of vogue? Are they they no longer relevant? (laughs) They're more relevant today than they've ever been. Because our culture... Because we have been so good at talking ourselves around the truth that we never really submit to it. And you know, I talk about deception. And deception is a very bad thing. And who is the deceiver but Satan himself. But I find one deceiver that is worse than even him. And that is our own self-deception. We are very, very good at it. Talking ourselves into compliance. Compliance. If I just do, oh, and I can only do, you know, just get away with doing that, then I can get away with this on the side. We're very good at patting ourselves on the back. Good job, David, you did just enough. But it doesn't expose the heart. So it brings us to a point of kind of, man, what are we gonna do? Uh, and we come to the end of ourselves? Which is again, a very good thing because the truth is, God knows that. And God has a wonderful, wonderful solution. He's provided a solution which we'll get to here today. But let's go a little deeper on this idea of theft. You know, modern-day theft is a lot different than I think most of us realize, or or if we really dug in. And I'm going to go over some things here. So thou shalt not steal is something, again, we just kind of pass over the top. But if we'll take a moment to look at stealing in the 21st century, maybe that will strike home a little more. We'll start at the workplace. At the workplace, they find... And perhaps you've seen or experienced in ways that we could be thieving of our employers by working uh, and goofing around on social media and playing games on our smartphones while we're not on a break, but we're, we're supposed to be working. We're taking time from our bosses, from our employer, and we're essentially stealing time from them. That's effective company time. Being dishonest about the amount of time that we spent working on something, clocked in, quote, unquote, Again, that is a theft of company time and money. Taking extended lunch breaks without reporting it or making up for it. And once again, this is the kind of thing that we easily do for ourselves. We we give ourselves a break and say, Well, you know, you deserve this. You did this and you did that. And so I'm gonna, I'm gonna do this and I'm gonna make up for it later, except we don't often make up for it later. Taking office supplies home for personal use. So in the workplace, we can do that. That's something that if we really kind of press in and begin to examine our hearts, which is why you have to make rules in the, in the company, because it's interesting that even the best of people when left to themselves can begin to kind of violate some things and we talk ourselves into it. So theft, it can make its way into those areas of our life too. How about God? In Malachi chapter 3, God himself says, Will man rob God? yet you're robbing me but you say how have we robbed you he says in your tithes and contributions you're accursed with the curse for you are robbing me the whole nation of you bring the full tithe into the storehouse that there may be food in my house thereby put me to the test says the lord the only place you find that in scripture if i will not open the windows of heaven for you and pour out for you a blessing until there is no more need we understand as meredith shared earlier that you know tithing is a, a very important spiritual activity it is and it's what i learned as a young young man when i first gave my life to christ i began to learn that and so with my mowing money or the job money and the other thing man i started tithing right from the get-go to honor god and man i got to tell you after that many years almost 40 years of being a believer that it's god i've never been in want. god has cared for me over and over and over and over again call it privileged or call it blessing You know what? I believe that God blesses those who honor Him. That's scriptural. I don't care who you are, where you're from, what you've done. You honor God this way, then God will make sure you have what you need. Guaranteed. And so so we did but but what do we do? We just say, well, I don't really, really believe that. You know, it might be true for others. Or that's just one of those truths that you can kind of go in. And I've had, you know, I've had Debates with other Christians who try to go to town and, and kind of go through the Old Testament and say, hey, this is not really for the church. Folks said, don't believe any of that. The church operated that way. Absolutely. They embraced it, and it wasn't just the Jews. It was the, the, the Gentiles as well. It's been something that the modern-day church has practiced as a spiritual activity to honor God for centuries. And over and over again, we've seen God's favor on it. I wish I could go into, and, and perhaps I'm going to do a series in the future on why this is so important. But it is an area of theft, and God points it out. And God says, look, you're robbing for me because I gave you all the 100%. I'm just asking for 10 for you to honor me, thereby fulfilling the first four commandments by, saying, by not letting anything else be idolatrous, by when you honor me with the first fruit of your wealth, you're striking that, that golden calf down. You're honoring me over and over and over again. One of the things that I've learned is you never can outgive God which sets up something we're going to talk about here in just a bit. Well, how about head at home? You know, when we think about theft. You know, pirating music, movies, TV shows, and software. We all see the FBI warning that comes up, don't we? It says, they're going to come and get you. they are like, I'm knocking on your door. But the thing is, none of us have ever had that happen. Ding, 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 din. Oh, You know? Matter of fact, they even show little clips, right? If somebody, you know, them come busting through the door. Well, has anybody ever had that happen? Of course, you'll never raise your hand on that one, would you? But anyway... I mean, I don't know anybody that's ever happened to. But it's interesting, you know, that, that it is something that is considered illegal. And yet I think Christians, sometimes we continue to do that. We, we record things, we do that, we, we kind of bypass, we, we, we go beyond certain things to try to take advantage of what we see. Well, they really want us to do it. It's like the hotel towel, right? They really want you to keep it. But the whole idea is, it's of the heart, isn't it? Why would we hide it if we didn't think it was wrong. And so that's something can, that can happen in our lives at home. You know, I'm a, a musician, and most of you probably don't know that because you don't see me play, but I, I love to play. and Of course, music is important to our family. Years and years ago, I was a worship leader for about eight years at one of the churches I used to pastor. And uh, Andrew and I, matter of fact, that's part of our story. We, we did a lot of music together for many, many years. And we recorded, we did a couple of CDs, and it was fun. We Loved writing music, and it, so it's a part of our lives. And um, so, anyway, we had recorded this album, and so I went to this buddy. He was, he was working on his computer, and I was talking to him, and I noticed that he had my CD on his computer. I was like, hey, cool, man, you got it. He goes, oh, man, I got this program called Napster. I was able to upload it and get it for free. And I'm going, dude, that cost me thousands of dollars to record. That cost me, I mean, that's intellectual property. That's stuff that Andrea and I, I mean, it took hours and hours and hours. We had to pay pre- uh, professional musicians to come in and do, and man, you just uploaded it just like that. And I, and I just looked at him, and I just kind of smiled and said, dude, come on, man, just, Here, here's my wallet. You can take that too. And here we both got a chuckle out of it, but not so much, really. See, the truth is, it's another way of thieving. It's another way of, of stealing. We steal from the artists. We steal from them by not giving them what they're, they're due, They're paying for the, the thing that you enjoy. So I'd say it's another way that the 10, that Eighth Commandment is violated. So many things. You know, in Proverbs chapter 11, verse 1, it says this, A false balance is an abomination to the Lord, but a just weight is his delight. And that speaks about really falsehood in the whole thing when we're talking about business, when we're talking about fair dealings with people. Boy, we all know that our culture is really in an upheaval when it talks about politics these days, whether it's going to be socialism or capitalism. Oh my gosh, it's just and and it just seems to be a wave that's rumbling out there. But what I find, and this is going to be my only commentary on the thing, is that so many people are concerned about what other people have and not so concerned about what you're wanting to take. And so if theft is wrong in God's eyes and we fall back into that truth, and we let it speak to us, then should it not affect our values and how we live our lives? Absolutely. And so, once again, we're, 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 we're going to morph into the heart or the spirit of the law. And that is, it's not so much about not stealing from your neighbor as much as it is, is having a godly attitude concerning stuff and wealth. See, What God is really after, see, up to this point, what we have been doing is taking the letter of the law and then applying the spirit of the law and then finding the anti, the anecdote to that, the the godliness that Jesus wanted us to grow in. So let's back up. So in murder, he says, look, don't murder, but don't just not do. But I want you to add something to it. He says, the anecdote to hate, which is the core of murderous heart, is love. So he's, and, and so, also, the anecdote to lust and adultery is love. It is faithfulness. And so, the problem that what we have found here, folks, is that when we look at the Ten Commandments purely from a don't-do point of view, then we fall right into the trap that Paul says is awaiting every single human being when we try to live our lives in just the don't-do. You ever heard of the monastic movement? Monks, convents, and things like that? Well, they tried that. And they figured, what happened is they they began to realize, oh my gosh, this sin is a lot worse than we thought it was. So we better just cordon ourselves off, and let's just go to places where we don't do, where we don't even have access to the bad stuff. Let's just put ourselves in a place where we can never even want to do evil. Only problem is, the evil followed them in the walls. Because it's a heart problem, not a location problem. Not a physical problem. It's a spiritual problem. And a spiritual problem cannot be dealt with physically. There's nothing you can physically do to deal with that. It has to be dealt with spiritually. And a solution that that Jesus has for all of that. So what he was after, again, is the heart. We talk about theft. Our heart has to change concerning wealth. Our heart has to change when it comes to when we see other people have things. So we we go right back again. So much of what happens in the last six commandments is affected by the first four. When God is the Lord of my life, when God is the only God, then I recognize that everything comes from him. And therefore, if I begin to get into a situation where I begin to look at what others have and want it, you know, covet it, which we'll talk about, you know, an even deeper thing, uh, truth. But if I look at that and I yearn for it, then I begin to doubt God's plan for my life. I begin to doubt my place where God placed me to bloom and to plant. You know, Jesus came and he said, look, the poor will always be among you. And a very convenient statement that, that people ignore. Because I think what we, we as human beings think that poverty needs to be completely obliterated. And I think that's a great goal it's a wonderful goal. Except that some people want to remain poor. Except that people will continue to do things to bring them into poverty. Except that the earth is cursed. The ground resists us. Money flies away. We buy things we shouldn't buy. We don't save for the future. It goes on and on and on and on and on. So... We might have a poverty situation, which I experienced a little bit myself growing up. But what I learned was I don't have to stay that way. I don't have to stay that way. And here's another one that's going to make you a little uncomfortable. Maybe you want to throw your Bible or phone at me. And that is this. Do we really want all that wealth? Do we really want other people's lives? You know, the Bible tells us in Proverbs that God blesses the wealth or the righteous with wealth. Amen. That'll preach. But we forget the next part. And he adds no trouble to it. Bing. In other words, there are times that we can have a lot of wealth and oh, we got a lot of trouble that goes with it. How many millionaires declare bankruptcy? How many billionaires have declared bankruptcy? How many people that have had an incredible amount of wealth and that they can't enjoy it because it flies away because of the fact that wealth will never satisfy. The truth is here, we're so many of us in our culture today are concerned about what we have when we need to be grateful for what we've been given. And at that point, where you can really, really live, where you begin to say, I'm not even looking for the mirage. I'm going to follow where God, I'm going to put my foot one front front of the other. And it's amazing. And, and I've, I've heard this said once, I've, I've heard it a million times, and I think it's one of the things that as we get older, I, I'm not quite into that zone yet, but hallelujah. But anyway, as we get a little older, you begin to start looking back and saying, simplicity is good. And how many times do a young couple said, man, wasn't it awesome when we used to have to dig through the couch to just get us a hot dog for the weekend? Wasn't it awesome that we had to turn in bottles, you know, if you're from the north, or do different things and and to be able to just go to a movie together? How those times you look back with real joy because the simplicity of it, because after a while the the, the the things of the cares of this world the things that choke off the joy because we've worked our heart we worked hard to, to make ourselves richer, we've used up our energy we've used up our life in such a way is that we have just totally gotten things discombobulated and now it's put us in a place where it's, we should be happy but we're not I mean we can go after story after story after story after story of people that have had incredible amounts of wealth but they die completely in disaster, alone, not having any hope or joy, in some case insane, because that's not the solution. So when we talk about theft, again, we begin to realize that, wow, this is a lot deeper than just thou shalt not steal. What about the one where you get the cashier, you've gone to the store and you've you got a bunch of stuff and you realize that you didn't pay for two or three items. And you just walk out and say, well, it's my lucky day. And you go out home and you say, man, God loves me. But yet in your little down in the heart, you're thinking, yeah, but that poor waitress, that poor cashier is probably going to have to pay for that. And it wasn't their intention to bless you with those two or three items that day. You know? Or to walk out on a, on a meal. Or to not pay them a decent tip. Which we should do. And so we're sitting in these places where they're, they're very, what we would consider, you know, small and, you know, uh, inconsequential. But they really are. Because they reveal the heart. And I'm going to tell you how it reveals it in a deeper way here in just a second. So Jesus is ministering. And he's in a situation where he is... You know, again, preaching these truths. And this rich young man comes up to him in Mark chapter 10. And Jesus, again, he's sitting there out on his journey, and a man ran up to him, apparently been listening, and he knelt before him and asked him, good teacher, what must I do to inherit eternal life? And Jesus said to him, why do you call me good? No one is good except God alone. You know the commandments. Do not murder, do not commit adultery, do not steal, do not bear false witness, do not defraud. Honor your father and mother. Notice he takes the Ten Commandments. And he said to him, teacher, all these I have kept for my youth. And Jesus, looking at him, loved him. I, lo- I really like this part of, the, of, the, statement, of the, the story because it's indicative, and we'll come back to it. It's indicative of what, what Jesus is getting ready to do and what he's getting ready to say, which seems kind of harsh, but it's clarified by this. He said, loved him. And then he says, you lack one thing. Go sell all that you have and give to the poor and you will have treasure in heaven and come follow me. So he says to him to do two things, sell everything that you have and then come and follow him, join the ministry. Disheartened by the saying, he went away sorrowful for he had great possessions. Now we look at that and, you, and initially you might say, well, was Jesus asking him really to do that, to sell all his possessions? Maybe, I don't really know it could be considered it classified as what they call as one of the hyperboles or the hard sayings or teachings of Jesus but my guess is it's probably an Abraham Isaac moment it's an Abraham Isaac moment because Jesus knew what the answer was going to be that's why he loved him because he looked at him and he said and I was explaining to you know during the break to some of the, the musicians in the back when Jesus loved him, he, looked at, he loved him in a way that he loves all people on the earth. He loves every single soul with that kind of yearning to look at, he looked at him and just said, buddy, you don't get it. You're doing all this. You've got the, the appearance of godliness. You're, you're going through all the motions, but you don't realize that, there's, that your, your, your love for wealth, the greed and all, your position and all of that is going to prevent you from really walking forward in your heart, in real heart change. So he tests him. But instead of just saying, like perhaps any one of us would, or or in a situation where a true disciple would just say, (laughs) you kidding? Whatever I need to do, I am with you. Clearly all the other disciples had made that choice. Now they didn't have as much to lose. But it was a real test of his heart. And that's what we need to see. Was he willing and he wasn't. He had not come to the place. The Ten Commandments had got him so only so far, but not real life change. Not real life change. And Jesus takes the moment. It is listed here in our story to really help us see that that's what he's really, really after. Once again, he's going after the motivations of our heart, the machinations of our heart. What's really going on on the inside? Do we try to just go through the motions to appease God? to be compliant enough. And you say, Pastor David, how could you say that? I'm saying that because I've heard it. I've heard it come out of people's mouths. I know it's true. How many times have I been at the end of a service and a person who I do not know comes walking up to me, Pastor David, that was the greatest message I've ever heard. I'll see you next Sunday. Never to see them again. Hearts, you know, Words are words. And so what this man did, I've experienced I've seen it. But that's where the real test is. And again, we're being shoved into the corner. We're being, we're being pressed in where Jesus is saying, look, don't, don't even try to, to, to overwhelm me. Don't try to impress me with what you've done, what you have, where you've been, all of it. Don't. I know your heart. And where is your heart? Is it with me or is it not with me? So, folks, when we talk about theft in a grand scheme of things, does Jesus have a solution? Of course he does. Of course he does. He has a solution. And it's not just, again, not stealing. So don't buy into that. Don't buy into that. Because then you're not solving your problem. I'm not solving my problem by not just being a thief. Because, again, we find ourselves falling into that trap over and over again in the most small, insidious in self-deceiving ways how do we deal with this theft <laughs> how do we deal with this this heart well jesus says look i'll tell you how you deal with it once again to combat murder to combat adultery is love how do we combat the the the, the greedy heart how do we how do we do it to become generous we got to become givers you want to deal with the heart the thieving heart And you get on the other side of it. You don't become the one who's expecting. You don't become the one who says, oh, they won't mind me taking it. You don't become the one who says, you know what, the world owes this to me. No, you get on the other side of it and become the one who is giving and changing it. You become the one. So you just say, well, I I don't know about that. I mean, I will become a giver when God blesses me. Wrong answer. Jesus foresaw that. He says, if they come up to you and ask for your cloak, your, your coat, give them your cloak as well. Well, that means I'm without a, without a coat and a cloak. Does God want me to freeze to death? Is that what this is all about? No, God says, I'll give you more. I love you, I'm going to care for you. The whole point is, what mucks this whole system up, and I say system, I, I, I think in a grander scale, is that when, and it's sad, because Christians, if, if Christians are not being generous, then we, cre- we, we could create an environment where no one has need, if we're all walking generously. And God wants to destroy that. God wants to help us see that we can become, if we all become a part of the solution, then man, will we not knock poor, I mean, poverty out of the park? Will we help people understand? Because God says, I will bless those who bless others. He said, it is more blessed to give than to receive. Are these not truths that you and I believe? You can say Amen. We believe these things, but do we walk in them? They are the anecdote to the feeding heart. That is exactly the biblical answer to most of what we deal with. And it is a discipleship course. It's what I have taught, it's what I've believed, it's what I've had to walk in myself, is that if I just live a life of don't doing, then <laughs> it comes to visit me. I'm ex- my heart will betray me. But if I start to get off my feet and I start moving and becoming a part of the solution, and God says, look, you want to understand what it's like to be uh, content, then being a giver is the solution. Being one who's generous is the solution. You let God use you to change the world, and God says, you know what, and I've learned this, and you have too, many, many, many of you, if not all of you at one level or another, that when you step into the role of being the one who's the blesser, God says, I like that. To him, you know, the one who's given much, required much, but then God keeps filling it in. God sees us as being generous individuals, and he says, you'll never be lacking. You now become a conduit of of blessing. See, I think we all buy into the idea that God is just the big, great vendor in the sky, and when he sees us do good things, it's cha-ching, here you go. But God has backed way up and said, no, actually, I like this idea better. I want you to do it. I want you to do it. I'm going to move through you. Because then that really reflects people understand human love when it is coming through you. And so that's what he asks us to do. So generosity once again becomes the anecdote. The power of the truth that we're really, really looking for here. And what will really change our hearts. You know, I love in scripture where it talks about this. Well, it goes on in, in, in Second Corinthians. It says, "Whoever sows sparingly will also reap sparingly." This is the, the, the law of sowing and reaping that we can see in, in almost every aspect of life. And he says, "Whoever sows bountifully will also reap bountifully." Each one must give as is decided in his heart. Hmm. Not as what is required, not as what pressed upon you, not what is guilted into you, but what you have decided in your heart. And that's where we need to open up, because once We begin to become a part of the solution, then man, the idea of taking stuff from other people, needing stuff from other people, wanting to defraud and and rob people, it does not it's 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 neat for me to watch a businessman, and I know many. When they get that in their head, when they realize, matter of fact, I just had somebody after the first service walk up and said, David, I was just talking with another business individual. And we both were having just a wonderful time realizing that we, we, we're not complaining about what the government is doing. We're not complaining about all that. We just are so grateful for what God has given us, and we want to be a blessing. And that is cool. That, that's it. That's the heart of it. And that's what God wants to do in his people. Because left to ourselves, folks, our hearts become demanding. We begin to compare our situation to others. Paul said it. Contentment is a wonderful, wonderful thing. When we compare ourselves, God knew this. That's why He put it in the Ten Commandments: he said, "Don't steal from one another," because that reveals a heart that that, that causes things to, to take off and among among people, accusations and and all kinds of wickedness comes through that door. It's not good. Not good at all. And just because something's made into law or a process or whatever is filled out on a form. Doesn't make it right. Doesn't make it right. So folks, the key to embrace his values, because that's where God wants us to go. We've got to grow in our value system. Generosity needs to become a part of who we are. Not something that's pressed upon us. Not something that we just practice from time to time. No, we need to become generous people. How do we do that? Number one, we've got to acknowledge him. We've got to start with the first four commandments. Proverbs 3, 6 says, In all your ways acknowledge him, and he will make your path straight. So true. When we begin with the first four, Lord, you are the only God in my life. I'll have no other idols. I will not let anything, any person, any place, any ideology become more important, more impacting than you. Ever. And your word. Ever. I will acknowledge him, and he will make my path straight. He... Will help me see the mirage and say oh that's not true no that's not right it's not water help me God help me resist that mirage help me to to move in your direction well, son go this way but I don't see anything over there trust me and then we come into the oasis we come over the hill isn't it amazing how that works sometimes <laughs> I've seen that over and over again where you just trust God you say, I don't know God but okay I'm trusting you only to find, boom answer, a breakthrough, something you never could conceive or even imagine. That's a promise. So acknowledge him. Secondly, we need to agree with him. See, what we're, 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 we're learning when we go through the Ten Commandments, friends, is that it is about sin. Yes. It is. And that's the, pro- the part of the sanctification. is being made holy. It's, it's God getting it. That's why you're here today that's why we do what we do. We worship so that God will soften our hearts up. Then the word comes in and then we're able to receive that in ploughed up good soil. So the seed goes deep, it germinates, it bears fruit. That's what we want. That's what we're looking to. So many of us do this because we know ourselves. Yeah, we do. We know what we're capable of. That's why we need God. That's why we need a savior. That's why we need the Ten Commandments to continue to drive us back to him because we look at them and say, I, I gave in to bitterness again today. I gave in to lust today. I gave into to judgment today. I took a little something I shouldn't have taken. I kind of defrauded that individual. And when we get into that place, we've got a decision to make. Do we try to religify that? Do we try to justify that? Do we try to do anything else to try to bypass that, or do we look at it, let it look us straight in the eye and say, "You have sinned," and then where do we go from there? John, chapter one. John says, "I pray you do not sin, but if you do, confess your sin," and he's faithful to God, and he's faithful and just to forgive your sin and to purify you from all unrighteousness. But it begins with a repentant heart. And when we repent, then we allow ourselves to get brought right back into the fixing of of the problem that's on the inside. But it's interesting that Jesus would always tell him, he says, look, your sins are forgiven. Now go and make disciples. Now go and do something. Go and be a part of the solution. Now go and love people and pray for them. Because when you love people and pray for them, you're never going to steal from them. If you love for people and pray for them, you're never going to defraud them. If you love people and pray for them, you're not going to want to kill them. You're not going to want to judge them. You're not going to be, want to be prejudicial. You're not going to want to give in to any of that because you pray for them. Talk about the anecdote to all of this. Pray for somebody. Just destroys it. Twofold. Honor God, submit to him. Pray for those people and love them. And folks, you will be well on the path of God's favor and blessing on your life. Not yielding, not giving into the mirages, but steady on, coming into oasis after oasis after oasis. I'm not saying there won't be some dry times in between. They will be. But those dry times are what make us. It's What helps us. Our roots go deep. Our trust in God grows even more. And that's Let's stand up this morning. Thanks for joining our live stream today. Make sure to like our Facebook page. And if you want more information about us, make sure to visit us at our website, valleychurch.us. Or go and download our Valley Church app called Valley Church Weldon. If you feel led to give today, you can give on our website and on our